Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing the movie Aliens in short controlled bursts. My name is John Engel. I'm Tasha Robinson, and today we're talking about minute number 16, which begins with Burke telling Ripley about how she wakes up in the middle of the night covered in sweat, and then it ends with Ripley waking up in the middle of the night covered in sweat. Right, and uh, once again, we have a guest host this week, Tasha Robinson, uh, previous guest and friend of the show. Thanks for coming, Tasha. Sure, absolutely. Of course, you probably all remember, I mean, a lot of you out there listen to the Indiana Jones Minute, the Star Wars Minute, you've listened to our show before, so you probably remember that Tasha is from the Next Picture Show podcast, among other things. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you, where you do writing, where you do your writing, and so on? Um, this, these days, you can mostly find me over at TheVerge.com, uh, where I am doing film writing, TV writing, and uh, a lot of editing. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And we have a guest as well. Sure. Our guest this week is Kwame Opum, who works with me over at The Verge. He is the news editor there, and he's an all-around uh, specialist in comic books, superhero movies, science fiction, and uh, just just genre in general. Hi there. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Kwame. Happy to be here. All right. Well, we're talking about minute 16 here. We're still in the midst of Burke trying to convince. He's kind of making his last-ditch effort here to convince Ripley to go along on this Kind of ridiculous mission. I, I really feel that this is a lot to ask of someone, and I think that Ripley does too, as we get her extreme response and her final shutdown of Burke here. What do we make of Riser's performance, how he responds to her shutting him down as harshly as she does? I think you're asking the wrong question. I think I think the question is, what do we make of his hair? <laughs> Well, in that in that very first uh, the very first second of this minute, we're just we're looking at him with the light falling in on his face, and he's just got this this ridiculous poofy Seinfeld hair going on, yeah, and he's here 80s. in his yeah he's here in his suit and his eighties hair, and he just he compared to what we've seen in Alien, he just looks so different. You know, those were grubby working class people in a grubby grubby working class ship, and he sails in here as just like the epitome of the company. You know, he's in his nice suit, he's in his nice tie, and he's just he's saying all of these slick things and and handing out super futuristic plastic business cards. <laughs> I mean, to, to me, his character is exactly what he looks like. Yeah, I mean, he just seems to kind of epitomize this yuppie aesthetic from the time where he has the big poofy hair, he's got this oversized coat, he's got the tie, he seems stressed out, but he also seems overconfident in his ability to get Ripley to go along with this ridiculous plan. And yeah, he seems kind of like Wall Street adjacent where it's like, yeah, no, I, I can make this deal. Let me make this deal. I've got this. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, he In the screenplay, there's a, a quick line in between a couple of blocks of dialogue where it's it simply says, Burke is showing his uh, previous experience in sales. It actually says that in the script. <laughs> and it's perfect. I mean, he is. That's what we, we're getting a bit of a used car salesman character out of this guy. But when Ripley shuts it down, I mean, I feel like he thinks that he can push her into this and he's used a, a lot of, of his tools to get her to do that guilt and sh job shaming and so on but when she finally blows up at him he looks legitimately shocked like the the look in his eyes glassed over eyes shocked he gets fidgety he puts his hand up to his mouth he seems like a, a wounded child for a minute and it sort of harkens back to the previous blow up that ripley had in the inquest where, you know, she talked about you can kiss all this goodbye, picking up papers, and everybody's leaned back just like, wow, maybe they're not used to this anymore. Maybe 57 years later, 
emotions have been sedated to the point that people don't hear yelling and screaming anymore. But I, I don't know. I think Riser's really good at this wormy, yuppie character. He just—it's it, pretty much perfect casting. We've been going on about that a little bit in previous weeks, but it's—it's it's good casting. He's disarming in a way, but he's such a a worm that I don't know. I think we know he's an asshole, but there's something about him that makes us still like him just a little bit for a little while longer. There's a kind of charm to him, I think. Like I've—I've I've seen his stand-up. I've never really followed Paul Reiser really closely, but you kind of like. Not you want to root for him, but you kind of look at him like, this guy's struggled to get where he is, and you kind of see that this, he needs this. That's kind of what he emotes for me. He's also, I mean, compared to everything else she's going through right now, he's the face of kindness in this story so far. I mean, he's got an agenda, he's pushing her, but at the same time, he's the only person who seems to sympathize at all with what she's going through. And he's kind of playing the good cop to the company's bad cop right now, but he's still he's still the closest thing, apart from Jones, he's the closest thing that we've seen to a kind face. That said, his weaseliness, I mean, it's, it's what sticks with you about his character in this movie. I just remember uh, a few years after the movie came out, there was a an aliens board game, like a strategy game with with hexes and minis that you could move around on it, and it was very much a like a, a movement game, uh, a, a minis game. And some friends of mine came up with a variant on it that they just called "Let's Eat Burke," where you just stick <laughs> like two aliens and Burke into like an eight by eight space and see how long Burke can survive. Because, you know, his weasley little face, he just, it, it's what sticks with you about him in this movie. And you kind of want to get see it getting bitten off by an alien. Well, I think there's an interesting thing about Burke and Ripley's relationship that's built visually here. And, and even going back to the previous minute as the scene began, we open the scene when they first come into the apartment in a white, nice wide shot, a big master shot, as big of a master shot as you can get in that tiny apartment. But, you know, sort of it's it's sort of a remedial kind of montage idea to just open wide, cut down to a couple of medium two shots that we get or medium one shots. And then we get the big emotional moment when the tension's really ratcheted up. We go to these extreme close-ups between her and Burke. But then instead of pulling back to that master shot again, we actually are in a kind of awkward tight two shot with the two of them, where even after she's yelled at him and he's been scolded, there's no distance created between the two of them. And I feel like this is sort of a visual tethering of the two of them. They're going to always be linked for as long as he survives the film. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're getting this idea visually here. I might be giving James Cameron too much credit. I'm not sure. I'm always, for some reason, I'm always worried about doing that in this movie where it wasn't as, it was much easier to give Ridley Scott credit for doing things like this, I guess. But I, I feel like this is kind of a nice bit of editing here. It's simple, but I, I get that feeling. She uncomfortably goes to light that cigarette. He shoves that card down on the, on the table, and we get this idea that they're still linked. And where I think that the instinct would typically be, once she shut him down, there would be distance created, and we might back off from them a little bit. Yeah, and this is like the first really meaningful relationship she's had, other than Jones again, where she needs that connection after being in hypersleep for 57 years. And I, it's really powerful, especially since it kind of builds on the Will and Yutani relationship that she's had from the original film, but also it's colored by the fact that this is not only an evil company, but this is a, a, an incredibly incompetent company where she has no real reason to trust him, especially considering what just happened to her in her mind. But also, this is a person that is actually reaching out to her and apparently trying to look out for her best interest in relation to this grand venture that they're trying to actually undergo. 
these close-ups the where where we're pushed in so close on the two of them it, it, like as you said you know this is a different director from the last film it's a different director from the next film but as we're pushed in so close on her face i, I kept thinking of that that iconic shot from alien 3 that we saw over and over and over where the alien is is pushing up right in her face and she's she's turning away from it you know weeping because she thinks she's about to die and that's what i get here is we're so close on her face we can't even see all of her chin you know we're we're right up in her eyes experiencing her emotions and it's the same thing we got in the the last minutes of alien when we're zoomed in really close on her face watching her fear as she prepares to like try to make her last effort to to survive and deal with the alien it's just interesting to me that all three directors in this case are going to the same idea of just how close and, and intimate can we get on her on Siri Weaver's face it helps that she has a really expressive face well, it's, and it would be a natural progression that eventually you would be in that tight on her face and you would actually shove the alien into the frame with her. Like that, by the third movie, it's about time they got that close, I guess. So, and you know, there's there's something to be said if we if we had a slightly wider shot here of her face, or if the, instead of pulling back into that uh, medium two shot, if we did a, a tighter two shot where he's. I mean, he's that close to her in the in, as the scene is blocked. He could very well be in her face that close. But we get a nice little progression instead from one movie uh, to the next. And, yeah, I see, I see what you mean there, for sure. Does that mean that the merger between Ripley and the alien resurrection is a natural progression? I feel like that's a weird thing to jump off from. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, I guess if, if, if you could, you know, if the third level of the progression is getting right in her face the fourth one would have to be actually getting into her dna so yeah i guess i guess that could be right (laughs) so while we're in this two shot here burke you know he gives her he sets down well right before he sets down the card he shushes her right you guys noticed that correct Mm -hmm. but he doesn't did did you I, i kept watching i probably watched that thing that moment 10 times today, he is saying something there and the shush is ADR'd in. Now I can't, I think what he's saying is I, I hear you. I think that's what he says, but I no evidence to this at all. There's nothing in the script, but a shush at that moment kind of makes me cringe. And the choice to drop whatever it was he said to the shush, do we see any value in that as far as an editorial choice? It's something that had to have been very deliberate. Hmm. I'd have to go over that again, but I, I, th- I think he's trying to be, I think it's part of the idea that he's trying to be comforting and placatory here, as opposed to, you know, him giving a little, giving her a little pat and saying, you know, don't worry, your pretty little head. Like, I don't think it's intended to be condescending. I think mm. it's intended to be like, he's, he's at least trying to comfort her and calm her down. I think it might be somewhere in between where like you have in one of the moments where he's, she's pushing back. You have that little, like, look that he makes where, like, he's kind of stunned that she's pushing back so hard, where he acknowledges that this is someone he needs to work over, even though he needs to console her a little bit and acknowledge that she's actually gone through a thing. So, I don't know, it's it's weird. It goes back to him being kind of wormy and slimy a little bit, where this is a mark that he needs to get to do what he wants, and even though he wants to empathize, the business needs to be done. Yeah, I... Uh... As, as far as an editorial choice, it's like taking it out of Burke's mind and going into James Cameron's mind. If, if you got this moment, let's just say I'm right in what he says. I hear you. I think that's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But let's just say it's something like that. 
that's a lot more agreeable to me than a shush. Now, a shush is something you might do to a child. Or uh, I feel like if you're shushing an adult, even if it's a, supposed to be a consoling sort of calm down, it's, I, I read that as condescending. Maybe that's just a, a personal thing, but I felt like it was, I feel like there was a bit of a harder edge they decided they wanted here. I don't know. It could very well be that whatever he said didn't come off in the recording and they had to come up with something else and they, you know, maybe they changed their mind in the, in the, in the recording booth, but I don't know. I th- I always wonder about these little changes that they seem so small when you're watching the movie, but they're so deliberate in the making of a film that there's got to be meaning behind them. Hmm. I'm just, I'm going back and just like watching his facial expression when she pushes back against him. And that moment where he covers his mouth just seems so significant to me because mm-hmm. essentially he's, he's regathering himself. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's finding, he's finding new ground. And that moment just looks so much like, all right, that ploy didn't work. Let's, let's figure out what the next ploy is. Like he didn't, he thinks quickly on his feet, like a salesman has to, but he didn't necessarily come with a second plan in mind. He didn't have a plan B because he assumed plan A was going to work or given the, the different things he's offering here, you know, he showed up with plans A, B and C and now he's trying to figure out what plan D is. And just for a moment there, you kind of see him when he looks down and covers his mouth. It's like he's going offline for a second to reboot and, and come back with a new program. Do you think he's kind of do you think he's kind of resigned when he's putting the card down? And just kind of like, well, let me regroup. I'm giving her an option. And that option is going to make her come to me. I think there's a chance of it, that being the case. He might not have any more recourse. Other than, okay, he knows her. He just read her her own psych evaluation, right? He understands. He's probably, I mean, just like our intro suggested, he knows how she wakes up in the middle of the night. Maybe he just regrouped and realized, you know what? All I got to do is wait for it because she's going to have these nightmares. and She's going to keep having these nightmares. The nightmare that we get at the end of this particular minute, we don't know that that's that night. This might be nightmare number 20 since the last time she saw Burke. So we don't know. Maybe he's just realized, you know what? All I got to do is wait this out. She's going to call me because she's going to have to to deal with this. She's going to have to face up to it at some point. I love that she needs to to light a cigarette after talking to him. Like she's she turns away. She's already done with this conversation and having a little like you know, tension relieving smoke, which by the way, it is, it's kind of the point where it's so shocking to see people smoke in films that aren't like films from the forties and fifties, where it's like a huge part of expressing attitude where it's so expected, like seeing somebody smoke in the future and (laughs) seeing somebody smoke in an oxygen controlled environment in particular, it's just, I just want to like grab her and say, do you, do you know what you're doing here? Tasha, didn't we talk about this already? I, I'm pretty sure we had this conversation last year in Alien. That's funny. Maybe we um, did. I maybe I, I just I can't did. get over I can't get over aliens people smoking. I can get over I, them exploding. I just can't get over them smoking. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I know Tasha that you're keen on the uh, novelizations, and I don't know. Did you did you read this one? Uh, no, no. It was just uh, it it was just Alan Dean Foster's uh, Alien. That obsessed yeah. me so much. And by the time, because here's the thing, I, I remember that conversation. Uh, when Alien came out, I was too young to go see horror films. By the time right. Aliens came out, I was old enough to go see action films. So right. I got to see Aliens, so I didn't have to obsess over over the novel as uh, methadone. 
Well, I was just going to point out in the Alan Dean Foster novelization of Aliens, these are specifically stated to be nicotineless cigarettes. So I just want. <laughs> oh, really? So you can. <laughs> I just read that last night, and I thought you'd find that funny. I did uh, find that funny. But are they fireless cigarettes? Because that's really, no, like... No. I mean, the lighter is a giveaway. <laughs> I mean, they're... Yeah, and they are and they just keep smoking in these things. I mean, they were smoking... That dude was smoking an Alien Covenant, right? The guy that... The first guy... Well, I guess, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about Alien Covenant on here, but they're, smoke, they're smoking in all these movies. Oh, sure, but the guy who's smoking on Alien Covenant that I remember is smoking on a planet, which is right, very different. Right, he's outdoors. You're probably not going to use them. up the, the oxygen on a planet. Yeah, it's a problem. They must have solved it somehow, but I guess we don't really need that explanation. Well, now we've got vaping technology. Like, if this film was made today, it should be whipping out a vape. Right. Can you imagine? Oh, man. <laughs> So we always talk about any director's cut changes as well as we, we we typically like to stick with a theatrical cut as far as the main show. But when we come to a point in the show where there's something that was added into the director's cut, um, which also means it was cut out originally for the theatrical cut, we like to talk about it. And in this particular scene, it actually kind of leads back into the last minute a little bit, but I wanted to save it for today to talk about uh, just to see what you guys think that. Are you? Do you remember having seen the director's cut, or are aware of the moment here where Burke actually talks about Wayland Yutani and name drops them, and also gives their "Building Better Worlds" motto to Ripley? No, oh, I'm, I'm a lot more familiar, familiar with the the action of the director's cut. I, I don't remember anything here. Yeah, there's so many tiny changes. Uh, little moments, little pieces of dialogue in this particular one. Alien was a lot easier to deal with as far as the director's cut. It was big chunks here and there, whole scenes that were added back in. But in this case, there's a lot of moments where they just added dialogue back in. And I was curious what you guys thought. You know, we usually, I like to ask the guests or the guest host what they think of the change, whether it's a beneficial change or not. And in this particular case, we would have had our first actual name dropping of the company instead of just calling it the company and whether that would have had any value in this movie or not to have had that put put in uh, as it is in the director's cut i want to hear what kwame has to say about this one because he we were talking about wayland yutani just before uh, recording i know he has opinions there oh um <laughs> i happen to i think wayland yutani is fascinating as this like evil corporation that's just pure evil and also just like this avatar for like 80s evil companies um, so naming it in that cut is significant because like, oh, you have something to name. You have this idea of this corporate entity that is capable of all these terrible things that are both nefarious, but also absurd and arbitrary and kind of stupid. So the fact that Burke says it, it's like, oh, okay. It's kind of like Enron. Like this is, this is bad stuff. This is really bad juju that they're actually doing as opposed to like the company where it's like this vague concept of you're working for the man as opposed to like you're working for this like very distinct, terrible place. So yeah, I, that ch I changed a lot for me. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's interesting because we have that, that sort of distant blue collar feel of alien, right? Where the company is, they're just the company. They all work for them. So they don't need to, why would they ever say the name of the company? But in this case, we've got a guy who, to me, what he says is, you know, he says, Whalen Yutani building better worlds. And Ripley's response is, yeah, I've seen the commercials. That's what she says. 
And that that kind of opens the world up a whole lot, right? Like it, it instead of just the truckers in space kind of idea of alien, we're getting more of a utopian society kind of idea here, right? And Burke is a messenger from this utopian society. That's a something we couldn't have had from Alien unless Ash was somehow uh, a zealot for you know some sort of android zealot for Wayland Yutani. We wouldn't have had that in Alien. So it would have been a marked change for for this movie to have that put in at this point. It raises a lot of questions of like, well, if you have this one company, what other companies are doing similar or different things or better things potentially? And then you think about like, oh, what kind of other kinds of space travel is being done at this time in the future? And just opening that door up raises so many other questions that have no answer really in this universe. Wayland Utani is also just such an interesting company name. You know, it's like it's a hyphenate indicating kind of a join between this very traditional Anglo-Saxon name and, you know, what sounds like pretty clearly like an Asian, maybe Japanese name. And it, it just gives you this instant mental image of a really large like international conglomerate. You know, that was probably a couple of companies that merged together at some point. And without knowing anything else about it, except that it chooses as a representative somebody like Burke and that this is what the name of it is. Like you already sort of feel like you have an idea of what it is. I guess I guess you have everything in Alien to kind of guide you in terms of what the company wants, what the company is willing to do to get what it wants. But I think giving it a name, I mean, it's like going through umpty seven uh, marvel movies with thanos popping up at the end you know once you finally get a mention of his name it, it just it feels different it, but mm -hmm. he becomes a person instead of a poster yeah i you're right that's an interesting point you make tasha about the the hyphenization and how it's sort of even if you see it written out it has this visual link right between east and west mm -hmm. and it, impl it, it it implies globalization and last week we were talking about whether the fact that Burke knows so much about her psych evaluations and so on. And the fact that Ripley continues to work for this company that screwed her over so bad, right, that endangered her life makes me wonder if this isn't a corporatocracy that we're talking about. Like something where Whale and Yutani, maybe that's all there is mm -hmm. and, and there's no way out. So I don't All these are very interesting ideas. And once you say the name. If you just say the company, that could be Exxon or that could be, you know, Pepsi. But once you give this name and you get these ideas added to it, it really makes her seem trapped even more so. And I think that helps us. Uh, I think that would that's one of the few times where I think the director's cut change was good, because I think that helps us understand, uh, even if it's something that we're theorizing in our own minds and isn't in the text of the film, it helps us understand the choice that she's about to make in the next couple of minutes. So would you say the movie is anti-globalist then? I don't know. Maybe. I, I feel like that would be a James Cameron mid-80s sort of ideology, right? Uh, the the action, 80s action movie ideology of individualism. I think that the idea of the company and, the, and globalization would be suffocating the, the individuality of Ripley, right? I don't know. That's what I would get out of it. That's making assumptions based on other films and just the, the time that this movie was made. But yeah, I, I would say probably so. She's definitely against the company. Our hero is bucking against the company at all times. So uh, I guess so. There's also just the degree to which like the company has been used in so many other stories, you know, as a 
like as a far future uh, science fiction kind of thing. I mean, it's used in contemporary things to refer to the CIA. There's a genericness to it that is intimidating, but is also just sort of vague, you know, actually having a name put to it. Again, it, it makes it a specific thing. It makes it, it sets it in a specific time and place. And as you say, like the company could be Exxon, the company could be <laughs> Verizon, like who knows. But once you actually put a name to it, it kind of fixes us in this world, in this like science fiction future world where there's this specific entity that isn't an entity that we have today. All right. Do you guys have anything else for this minute? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it's really cool when uh, Burke gives her the card and it, it just looks like a fat, fancy business card. And it's <laughs> it's not until coming up that we find out that there's more to it than that, which I think is pretty cool. Um, we've only really talked about the first half of the minute. Uh, it's like we're only like 24 seconds in. That's a good point. <laughs> we suddenly pull back out of that two shot that we're so obsessed with. And Gorman is standing there and it's <laughs> kind of a moment of, oh, there's somebody else in this scene. Like, as, as short as that encounter was, the camera was so close up on them and it was so intimate. There's so much, like, interplay with like, her anger and him retrenching and then coming back at her. And then suddenly we pull back. <laughs> it's like it's like we've been watching them have sex and there's just been somebody else standing in the room the whole time. It's just, it, it, seriously, it is that shocking to me, seeing Gorman just standing there, hat in hand, like, oh, am I still in this scene? Great. Uh, right. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week, how Gorman's a bit indifferent about this, right? He He's not driving hard to get Ripley to come along on this mission. You could theorize that he doesn't care. He doesn't think she should come on the mission. I tend to think he's not really, it's not really his call. And I think that we're minimizing him right away here. Um, and I think Cameron's being dismissive of him as a character, and it's sort of foreshadowing of the function of the Marines as the movie goes on. Like really, they're not of that much consequence. They get used by the company. And in the end, Ripley's the one that has to pull them out of the fire. So I don't know. I think that maybe we're getting just a little bit of foreshadowing with the fact that he's so insignificant in this scene. But again, I might be giving James Cameron way too much credit. (laughs) I can't help but to say that. I'm sorry. Oh no. I mean, I think we're actually, we're absolutely setting up Gorman as Gormless. I mean, I, I don't think that that name is an accident, and I don't think that mm-hmm. his his awkwardness and not being in charge in this scene is an accident. Right. We talked about how Burke specifically says, I want you to come along on this. So he keeps using the, the you know, I. Uh, never involves Gorman in the decision as he's trying to convince Ripley of this, and which which I just think that these Marines are just pawns for this company anyway. So we're getting an indication of that early on. It's nice and subtle, though. Uh, we're not getting this ham fist. He's not saying something and Burke interrupts him or anything like that that would be too over the top or too on the nose. It's very subtle, and we're just going to come to understand their place. I mean, right now is not really the time to to consciously understand the Marines' place. We want to think that they have things under control, or the movie really isn't going to work uh, in the in the early stages of the uh, confrontations later. But uh, yeah, I guess there's also this moment where Ripley wakes up from the dream. Oh, yeah. Before we get to that, though, when when Burke and Gorman walk out, we kind of get a moment of her like alone looking at Jonesy and just like, look at that room. What what an interesting room in so many different ways. Like, it's this tiny little space. You certainly like understand that it's, the, you know, that they're in a space environment where there is limited space for anyone. But 
like you you have everything you need in this tiny little area you know you've got a little sitting nook you've got a bed you've got these bright white screens that are seem mostly to be trying to bring in light you've got your little kitchen and then there's junk all over the place i i just i kind of love that this room looks lived in and that it gives you an impression that ripley is not she's not about housekeeping you know she's not fussy and and fanatical about keeping surfaces clean there's like what a washcloth sitting on, on her nook there's like a bunch of what look like half drunk drinks sitting around i don't even know what some of the, the things that we're seeing on screen are but like she's not a very good housekeeper is what i'm getting at and I, I mean i love it i love the fact that like her their the filmmaker's first thought isn't well you know she's a woman of course she's she's a good housekeeper it's like no she's she's ripley she's she's a good fighter she's a good survivor she's not good at cleaning up like peanut shells or whatever the heck those things are i'm really amused by just really quick i'm really amused by the fact that there's a people magazine just in the right of the mm -hmm. frame just like just because and like yeah it just goes back to the fact that this is a lived in place and the fact that ripley is a survivor and she's the last living survivor of the last film she isn't above just like leafing through a magazine that's really stunning to me well i also think there's a there's a basic film school explanation for this too is that this is representative of her mind state like she's completely out of her element she's completely confused she doesn't know who she is right now and I want, that's something i'm going to talk about as the week goes on but i i, I don't think this is ripley exactly uh, and, I, and i'll get to that more in the next minute but i actually think that ripley probably does keep a tidy house typically but this isn't her this is she's everything about her right now is not the old Ripley, and that's part of what her journey is going to be. But again, like I said, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. Yeah, you have a point in that, you know, the bedclothes are rumpled, like the, just everything mm -hmm. here is. And it's not an exaggerated disarray. It's not one of those like performative messes where she's deliberately smashing things or scratching up the walls. It's just she hasn't bothered to pick up after herself. And that just, just seems significant about where she is. And I will point out, hearkening back to our conversation last week, there is a cup of, of coffee with cream in it in the background where it, they very deliberately showed her drinking black coffee and Burke eat, drinking the, the coffee with cream or going and putting the cream in his coffee in, in the previous minute. So we talked way too much about coffee last week. <laughs> but I just wanted to point out that perhaps, either that's, that, that's Burke's cup of coffee back there or it's... James Cameron got real artistic here and he's showing Burke is still lurking in the background with his mm. creamed coffee. I also, I like the fact that she goes to like sort of she, we've seen how she feels about Jonesy in the last several minutes, you know, that, that Jones is kind of her connection with the past and her connection with something that isn't corporate and isn't cold. Um, and something else that survived the way she did, you know, something else that made it through. So I, I really like the fact that, it, again, in a really tiny, uncommented on way, when Burke and Gorman leave, she goes to Jonesy. It just yeah. like, it just crouches down by him. It's just like, I, I just need your attention right now. You know, she doesn't pick him up and stroke him. She's just like, okay, pay attention to me, okay? Well, I mean, Jones is the only one that really gets it, right? He's the only one that was there. It's certainly easy to project that on an animal. But you bring up the the nightmare at the end, which is pretty much the rest of this uh, this minute. And one of the things I really love about this nightmare is uh, we don't see it. 
we've already seen the nightmare. We know what she's dreaming. When she sits up and clutches her chest, we know exactly what she's just been through again. We've already had it visualized for us. So I I think that's just a nice little piece of, of filmmaking concision there. Yeah, you get the feeling that that nightmare follows her to every setting she sleeps in, right? So the nightmare in the hospital room was in the hospital room. The nightmare in her apartment's probably in that bed. Everywhere she goes, that nightmare follows. And that's, yeah, you're right. All we need to do is see that once and we get that idea here. So it would have been way too much to have another chestburster scene right there. That's for sure. But there are films that would have done it. I think it might be a little bit more complicated. In the previous dream, it suggests that she's giving birth to the alien. And it's, it's, you get the sense that it's coming from her stomach. But here she's clutching her chest. Is she thinking of Cain? I mean, it could be that complicated. You're right. It's it's definitely more of a of a belly burster in the in the dream earlier than it is a chest burster. So maybe she is. Maybe she sees that moment in her dreams too. Um, there's no way to tell for sure. But yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Hmm. In the end, I think the effect is the same. But I think it's really interesting that she may be having different nightmares that speak to the same horror. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That it's not just. I mean, given that the nightmare that we see is an invented story it's not just a a replay of what happened before Uh, you know her her brain is making things up on her you know it's inventing more ways she's already experienced so much trauma and her brain is just inventing more ways for her to experience trauma so in this moment we don't know exactly what she just experienced but again i think it's it's good storytelling that we don't have to see it again because again there's so many films that would have i i'm thinking of the like the wicker man remake for one where there's like i don't know 27 times in that movie something happens and then it turns out it didn't really happen it was all a dream oh god i don't re- i can't even rem- all i can remember about that movie is bees that's it <laughs> well Just you don't bees. remember how to get burned how to get burned how to get burned how to no, get burned I don't- I don't remember anything. I love the original Wicker Man, and that movie was such an embarrassment. But the bees, man, the bees, that will live with us forever, I think. As well it should. All right. Well, are you, is that good for this minute, then? I'm tapped. Okay. I think so. All right. Well, uh, Kwame, you want to tell the people out there where they can find you online? Sure. You can find me on TheVerge.com, and you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Kwame Opom. Should I spell that? Maybe. <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> at symbol K-W-A-M-E-O-P-A-M. And Tasha, how about you? Uh, you can find me at TheVerge.com. You can find me writing about books at NPR. You can find me talking about film at the Next Picture Show podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And, of course, you can find us at AlienMinute.com or on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. You can also find us on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. And as we like to do at the beginning of the week, we want to thank Pete the Retailer and Alex Robinson over at the Star Wars Minute for coming up with this format and loaning it out to us. All right, well, that's going to do it for Minute number 16. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute number 17.